Clean, non-toxic, plant-based, and made in California. Earth source skin and body care that elevates your vibe. We feel best when we're living clean and simple with products that fit our conscious lifestyle. The average hair product has over 30 ingredients, consisting primarily of alcohols, toxins, and other junk. Jack Henry's best-selling clay pomade has a total of four ingredients, organic French lavender and MCT oil, beeswax, and bentonite clay. These ingredients nourish your hair and scalp while giving your hair an all-day hold, humidity and sweat resistant while adding thickness, texture, and volume. Visit jackhenry.co and enter promo code TWF at checkout for 20% off your order. The way forward is to respect the law of free will, to encourage mind, body, and spirit wellness, to promote love, compassion, and understanding, to be of service to others, and to honor the inherent sacred connection between all things. Welcome to episode six of the Way Forward podcast with Alex Zek. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Thomas Cowan, and I'll tell you straight up that this is one of the most eye-opening, jaw-dropping, inspirational, revolutionary conversations I've ever had the privilege to be a part of. I didn't do much talking. Dr. Cowan did a ton of talking, and it's because he had so much good info to put out, and my jaw was sort of on the floor the entire time trying to process some of the information that he was feeding me. Dr. Cowan completely flips the script on the accepted paradigm for viruses, bacteria, contagion, and what it means to be healthy. Dr. Cowan has served as vice president of the Physicians Association for Anthroposophical Medicine and is a founding board member of the Weston A. Price Foundation. During his career, he has studied and written about many subjects in medicine. These include nutrition, anthroposophical medicine, and herbal medicine. He is the author of three books published by Chelsea Green, Cancer in the New Biology of Water, Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Changing Nature of Childhood Illness, and Human Heart, Cosmic Heart. He is the principal author of The Fourfold Path to Healing, which was published in 2004 by Nutrins Publishing, and is the co-author of the Nourishing Traditions book of Baby and Child Care, published in 2013. He has lectured throughout the United States and is a frequent guest on health-related podcasts. And I had the privilege of interviewing him for my podcast, which I'm so grateful for. I don't want to waste any more time with me talking because there's so much info in this podcast that will be so beneficial for you, the listener, to hear. So without further ado, here's the episode with Dr. Thomas Cowan. So Dr. Cowan, um, I first saw you around five, six months ago. Uh, There's a video of you explaining, is is your dolphin analogy that you you always use, following a pod of dolphins. sort of 
highlighting the difference between terrain theory and, and germ theory. And that was really shocking to me. Um, I think that's probably the be- best place for us to start. Um, if you wouldn't mind going into the history of terrain theory versus germ theory and what sort of brought you to sort of be in the terrain theory camp, so to speak. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't actually typically refer to this as terrain theory, although one could, but it, I mean, it's a little bit different than that. And I wouldn't say it's inappropriate, but so I guess if we want to go through the history, um, so the, the question we're talking about is, do microorganisms, otherwise interestingly known as germs, because uh, it's an interesting play on words, because if you, look, if you think about a germ of a seed, it's actually the sort of nutrient part of the seed that a new plant grows from. So it's not a pejorative term, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like if you have the germ of an idea, that's a good thing. But somehow if you have a germ, then you get sick. But anyways, um, so the, what we're really talking about is contagion. Um, and what I mean by that is, is, you know, we all have the observation, and this goes back even thousands of years, at first, I get sick, and then my friend gets sick, who I'm near, and then my children get sick, and this, this person gets chicken pox, and then the next person. And for 2,000 years, people have postulated that there's something being passed from one person to another, which I would say is a perfectly reasonable observation, you know, because you get, you know, you go to a restaurant and a bunch of you get sick, and maybe there's something was passed from one to another. Uh, so this started, you know, ancient Greece, they said this something and we can't see it because it's too small. And that was being passed from one to another. So then they go about 1900 years until around 1850. And that was what I call the first Eureka moment. Now, I would like to point out that in that time from, say, zero to 1850 or so, so that's like 1800 years, there were other medical systems, you know, being developed around that time, right? It's not just, you know, we tend to think that we're the only people who actually ever knew anything. But, you know, there was Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine and Kabbalistic medicine and Native American medicine and, you know, I I could go homeopathy, herbs and all that none of them actually thought that illness was contagious. There is no concept in Ayurvedic medicine, Chinese medicine, homeopathy, or even herbalism that there is such a thing as contagion. Now, that doesn't mean they're right. I mean, maybe everybody in the world but Western conventional scientists, doctors, were wrong, and they and were right. But it's just interesting that, you know, maybe they were right, and... I don't know why they didn't think like that. Uh, so anyway, so they, so they, the, what I call the first eureka moment was they invented a light microscope, and, I, and I'm not sure what the date of that is. But then they saw something under a microscope called a bacteria, which was a living organism, and they could uh, take it out of the organism. And they said, they also said that, uh, or not said, they found that the people who were sick seemed to have more of these bacteria, and the people who were well seemed to have less or at least different ones. 
And sometimes people who got like sore throat, they would have the same bacteria one after the other. And so Eureka, we found it, there's bacteria, they get passed from one to the other and that's how we get sick. I mean, it's very simple and clear and I have no issue with thinking that, except, it, except there is another way to think about it, which is, you know, just like if you put stuff in a compost pile that doesn't belong, then you get bacteria that grow to digest what you shouldn't have put in the compost pile. And nobody thinks the compost pile has an infection. And same with you can poison a pond and you'll get algae growth. And nobody says that the pond has, a, has an algae infection or the way to treat the pond is to kill the algae and keep poisoning the pond. I mean, that's like ridiculous. So the question is, since it looks like in nature that, that bacteria are, are organisms that eat dead and dying stuff. I mean, imagine you have a forest, you cut down the trees, and then you kill all the bacteria and fungus, right? What happens then? You just have a bunch of dead trees and the forest will die. So not only is their role in nature to eat dead and dying stuff, but without that, nature doesn't work. Nothing can live. So the question is, are these bacteria the cause of disease or are they just part of the recycling process, including in living beings? Now, I, I would say, first of all, it's either one of those two could be true, right? I mean, who knows? And that's why we do experiments. And here's the way to do the experiment. You take somebody with strep throat or anthrax or some other bacteria, and then you have to isolate the bacteria, right? You can't give them, you know, like unpurified snot because then you don't know if it's the bacteria. And so you take out the bacteria, which they could do, and then they give it to another person who's not sick and they see what happens. And here's what happened. Nobody got sick. And Pasteur tried to do that for 40 years, along with a whole lot of other people. He claimed to do it, but it turns out he snuck a little arsenic in there to make people sick. And then they got sick. Because if you poison somebody with arsenic, they'll surprise, get surprise. looks like anthrax. And he was very clear that if you just take the anthrax bacilli, it's kind of bacteria, then nobody got sick. And so it has to do, I mean, you could call that the terrain, but it has to do with, the, the, it's, to me, I want to be more specific than that. Uh, an organism is either starved or poisoned or somehow disturbed. And then the body has to get rid of this diseased and dying tissue. It uses microbes, particularly bacteria, to accomplish that. So they help you out. While they're doing that, you feel lousy, like a sore throat. And then they finish their job, and then you're all better. Mm -hmm. That's how it works. And, you know, I've said over and over again, if somebody can show me one study, because we've looked, that you can take the bacteria and put them in a healthy person in a normal way. I mean, because I'm, I'm not talking about take bacteria and inject it into your brain directly. like. That's not quite right. I heard on one of the other discussions you had, the example was they, 
like cut open the brain of a monkey and poured in uh I think it was a boy who had polio, a diseased his diseased yeah. spinal cord, and they had blended it up and then literally poured that into a brain of a monkey. And yeah, they said they drilled a hole of- and then squirted it in, and they didn't do a control, so they didn't know whether the monkey just herniated the brain. You know? <laughs> yeah. you put enough stuff in there, you, you, you put downward pressure on the brain stem, and you can die. <clears throat> and that's what happened to the monkey. And uh, anyway, so so basically. It was interesting because there was a famous, there was two very famous microbiologists. So Pasteur was a chemist. And Pasteur, after 40 years and then he died, he basically said on his deathbed, the germ is nothing, the terrain is everything. Because he admitted that he couldn't, you know, make any animal or human sick. So it must be not the germ, even though I don't like the word germ. Let's be more specific, the bacteria. Now, there was also a guy named Robert Koch, who was a German guy, and he said, there's very good rules for doing this, which is, you know, everybody with, uh, who's got a certain sickness, they should have the same bacteria, right? You have strep throat, you should have strep, right? That's just, and if you don't have strep throat, you don't have strep. I mean, if you, if you have a, somebody bashes your finger and you get a broken finger, if you think it's the bashing your finger, everybody with a bashed finger should have, or a broken finger should have had bashed. And if you bash, and nobody who has a normal finger should have got bashed. Mm-hmm. So those are the first two postulates. And then the third one is you isolate the bashing, the bacteria, and you give that to a normal person, they get sick. And he, those were common sense. That's how human beings understand causation. Mm-hmm right? That's how we know something causes something. It's not like a theory. That's just how we think. And he then said, I don't know the date, but Koch's postulates have never worked. They've never been fulfilled. And it was sort of a fork in the road because you could either at that point say that we should change the postulates or bacteria don't make people sick. Mm-hmm. And they, for whatever reason, changed the postulates and said, we don't have to prove that it's there if if you're sick or not there if you're not sick, or we can isolate it and make you sick. We can do something else like say, I don't know, it's just hard to even follow the logic. So anyway, so we go from there. And then there was a bunch of diseases like the one you said, polio, where they couldn't find a microbe because there was no bacteria there. So they postulate there was something smaller than a bacteria that they couldn't see, and that was the thing that was being passed from one person to another. And they called it a virus, meaning poison. And the first case was polio. They couldn't see any bacteria. They then uh, basically took brain tissue and spinal cord from children, people who died of polio, blended it up, filtered it a little bit, uh, so they don't have anything purified. They don't know what they're looking for. They give that to thousands of different animals, and none of them got sick. And then they said something very interesting. (laughs) You could, they said, that's because there's no animal model for polio. Oh my God. Which is an interesting thing to think, like, right. 
you could also say that's because that stuff doesn't make animals sick. I don't know why, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And then they and they couldn't do it on humans because that was unethical. Mm-hmm. So they had no evidence that this stuff that they couldn't see was making anybody sick. And then 1907, they do a famous study. They took, a, I think, a macaque monkey or a rhesus monkey, two of them, drilled a hole in their brain, took this filtrate from unpurified from a child who died of, no, a child who had polio in their spine, grind it up in a blender, inject it right into the brain. One monkey dies, the other gets paralyzed. They hold it up and say, see, we proved <laughs> how polio is an infectious disease. With no, you think, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, there's like, no control there. There's no control in that situation. So how do you use that as evidence to definitively prove that this is what caused it? Right, and you don't even know what's in there because they couldn't see anything. They, it could have been that it had, you know, it turns out that polio is caused by lead arsenic poison. Mm-hmm. So it could be that you have lead arsenic in your spine because that's why you're sick. And so they could have been injecting arsenic in your, in your brain, which, by the way, isn't good for you. Yeah. So, so on, trying to think, you know, trying to prove that they could make animals sick with this filtrate of disease stuff. And then in the 30s, they had the second eureka moment, which is they invented the, the electron microscope. And they could look at these polio disease tissue and they see these particles and they said, that's the thing that's contagious. It's called a virus. They already said it was a virus. They just named the particle that they were seeing a virus. And then they learned how to purify. And this is actually very important. And it's actually the same things that a 1973 consensus conference at the Pasteur Institute said, this is the way to isolate and purify any virus. So they did it, and here's how they did it. They took diseased tissue, like a spine, grind it up in a blender, right, that macerates it, makes it so you can see the viruses uh, or see what's ever in there easier. Then they put it through an ultrafiltration, which gets rid of everything bigger than or same size as a bacteria. So you get rid of all the cells, all the bacteria, all the fungus, and you have a liquid that's just liquid, maybe some poisons and viruses. So that's the next step. Then you put it into a sucrose density centrifuge and it separates it out by weight, right? You centrifuge it and then you have a band that's pure viruses. Right? That is how you, that's how you isolate and purify. Then you take that band, and we know certain viruses have a certain molecular weight. You suck that out, you look at it under the electron microscope, and you see that it's pure. You, see, you should see 100,000 or million copies of an identical virus. And that's what Stefan Lenka did. He isolated, purified and then you can characterize it. You can say it has this genetic material, these proteins, this capsule, and then, and so that's what he did. And he, he was the first to identify a virus in, a, in, the, in the ocean, in a sea algae. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did for about 50 years, uh, sorry, about 15 years. They isolated, purified, 
and looked at these different viruses. And then they tried to make animals sick with the virus and it didn't work. They didn't, it couldn't make anybody sick with this isolated purified virus. And, you know, as some people said, they basically said, viruses, they don't do anything. Let's all be plumbers instead. And they would have, they closed up shop, you know, there's no, they're not pathogens. They just seem to come because when you poison the tissue, it packages up genetic material and sends that out into the world to tell other organisms what happened. So that's what I was going to ask you. So there is, <clears throat> there is some communication aspect between what is excreted from the cells, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, it's sort of conflating viruses and exosomes. It's really the same thing, right? Yes, but, but you can get too wrapped up in exosomes. Essentially what's happening is you take a tissue and you poison it, and it defends itself by packaging up this debris, this genetic debris, as a means of, of adaptation. Now, let's think about that for a minute, because we're told that the way adaptation happens is Darwinian genetics. And that means, so you have, you know, a bunch of organisms, and then you have a new toxin, like DDT. And, and because of chance, somebody has a genetic mutation that allows them to get rid of the DDT, right? Mm -hmm. And because that's adaptive, in other words, because that person does better in an environment with DDT, eventually all the other people or animals will have that mutation and it will become normal. Mm. That essentially is how Darwinian genetics works, right? Mm -hmm. Now let's think about that for a minute. So you have DDT and one person has a mutation that gives them an enzyme to get rid of the DDT. And then their children and their children's children, etc., will all have that enzyme, you know, because the ones that do survive better than the ones that don't. Right? Yeah. That's how it works. What happens if it's a 60-year-old postmenopausal woman? She doesn't have any children. Doesn't work. So the mm -hmm. whole thing, what about if it's a couple and they decide not to have children for economic reasons? Now, here's another thing. How long do you think that would take to spread throughout New Jersey, for instance. I don't know. <laughs> like a thousand years, right? Yeah, a long time. Because <laughs> you have a child, you have to wait 30 years, and maybe they don't have a child, and then they have a child, and only half of them have that gene. We're talking 10,000 years for to adapt to one gene. Yeah, but it doesn't work like that, though. But it doesn't work like that because... 10,000 years later, they've invented something besides DDT, and the whole thing is stupid because it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. So nature had to have a, you know, use a, maybe a quasi-military term, a rapid deployment system to communicate, here's a new uh, genetic, you know, Upgrade almost, right? What? Upgrade almost, right? Like yeah, you, you it's an upgrade. upgrade. Okay. Yeah, you, everybody, we got poisoned by glyphosate. We have this piece of genetic material, and we, and just like the trees do, you, you have beetles eat trees, they send out genetic material and chemicals, they tell all the other trees, you guys gotta defend yourself against beetles. 
They do, and the, and the forest survives. Same with this. We poison an organism. It makes a, packages up some of this genetic material, sends it out into the world, and then this is not a disease-causing organism. This is a communication strategy instructing the other organisms how to defend themselves. There is a huge difference. Now, it may seem like you get sick, like chickenpox. So you have symptoms, but the symptoms make you better because now you've learned how to adapt to a certain poison, electromagnetic frequency, emotional toxicity, nutritional starvation, whatever. You've learned how to adapt. If we get rid of viruses, we will not be able to adapt, period. So anyways, so then 1954, they prove viruses don't cause disease. They can't get anybody, any animal sick. They do the whole thing. There's no animal model for polio. There's no human model. It just doesn't work. Uh, and then a guy named Embers came up with a way to show how, how it is that viruses make you sick. It's, and it's very instructive. So he took uh, ground up like polio stuff, like from the brain. He, he centrifuges it, which is not purification. In, and then he inoculates that on a tissue, like kidney tissue. And you know what happened? Nothing. Because the, the stuff with the virus in it doesn't kill the kidney tissue. So he then said, I know a way to kill the to make it more effective. I can take this kidney tissue and I can put it in what he called minimal nutrient medium. In other words, he took all the food away from the tissue. And then he says, we have to, we have to get rid of the bacteria and the fungus and anything else. So we're going to put uh, antibiotics into this, by the way, which are nephrotoxic, meaning they kill kidney cells, <laughs> and amphoterable, which kills kidney cells. And then they put bleach in. And then they said, see, now the virus kills the tissue. <laughs> you think to yourself, wait a minute, how do you know that the, kid, the tissue wasn't killed by starving and poisoning it? And the answer is they don't. And believe it or not, that, that experiment got the Nobel Prize, and that is exactly how they proved the coronavirus kills, um, kills people. They took unpurified stuff, put it on a tissue culture, starved it, poisoned it. It then breaks down into these millions of pieces. They do a genetic analysis called a PCR analysis of the unpurified stuff. They find God knows what. Most of it's actually coming from the kidney stuff because you poisoned it. <laughs> and poisoned <laughs> kidney tissue breaks down into genetic material, just like you would expect. Who they would have thought, really you know? Do, yeah, who would have thought? They, they don't do a control. And, and that's how we got where we are now. So the, entire, <clears throat> the entirety of, of epidemiology and virology and really much of allopathic medicine is sort of predicated on these things that you're discussing right now. And it's almost like we're deeply rooted in, in some sort of 
misinformation in a way. It's a spell. Yeah. Now, let's just be clear. Not necessarily epidemiology. Okay. And this is, this is key for all, you know, your listeners. If you ask Joe on the street, you know, how do you, why do you think chicken pox causes disease? Why do you think COVID-19 is a coronavirus? They say something like the following, because a lot of people in China got sick and then they, st- they started wearing masks and then they got, didn't get sick. And then the people in New York City, they got sick. And the people in the nursing home, they got sick. And my Aunt Bessie went to a party and then she got sick. And Uncle Fred hung out in a bar when he shouldn't have and then she got sick. And the people who social distance 6.1 inches, they didn't get sick. And the ones who did five feet, 11 inches, they got sick. Now, here's, here's the answer to that is, thank you very much. Those are epidemiological observations. And the role, and it's, here's another one. Boy, you had all these sailors, right? So you're not in the uh, Navy, I guess, but they all, all these sailors, 1700, one after another got sick, right? Mm-hmm. And they, it was an infection. They were passing it one to another. That's an epidemiological observation. The role of epidemiology, these, you know, what about Brazil? They didn't get sick. What about this? The role of epidemiology is to generate hypotheses that you can test. Mm-hmm. So the hypothesis is there is an infectious agent. Now, I, at this point, I'm saying to everybody who says that, I agree. There could have been an infectious agent. Mm-hmm. I don't need any more epidemiology observations. I don't need that Aunt Fred, or that's probably Uncle Fred, uh, he went to a party and he shouldn't have. Or, you know, Albany didn't wear masks and they got six cases. Um, all that, I agree. We should test for causation. We did, didn't find anything. That's, that's how you do science. So, and it's same with, with that sailors. So the epidemiology said there could have been an infectious, contagious thing. And then one of the sailors ate a lime and he got all better. And they said, oh, this is scurvy. You guys need vitamin C. Next thing you know, they put lemons on the boat and nobody got sick. The same thing happened with Pellegra, with Barry Berry, and about 10 other ones. They said, you know, one after another, people in the same house, they get sick. And never mind that every house in the United States is full of chemicals and poison and the water's crap and there's stuff in the air and electromagnetic fields and eating the same food and, you know, and, and everybody's beating up everybody else in that house, you know. So there's a lot of things. And all I'm saying is, fine, we've tested the virus thing, right? 150 years, $20 trillion or so. How about if we spend $100 million testing glyphosate, air pollution, electromagnetic fields, uh, and I'll even help you figure out how to test it if you want. Let's test those because we already did the, the, the virus thing and it doesn't work. Yeah, so, so basically, just, just to recap that, um, in layman's terms, you're basically saying that we have multiple studies that have been done, and none of them really effectively show causation between, let's say, a bacteria 
and or a virus and a subsequent illness. Right. Can't do it. Wow. That's, that's a really, 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 uh, I'm sure for a lot of the people listening, shocking thing to hear, but it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because they're, they're at the site. The bacteria are at the site of your tonsils mm-hmm. to clean up the debris. The viruses are at the site of your polio because that's how poisoned with, in this case, lead arsenic and then later DDT, that's how they break down to detoxify. And we know that because if you stop them from making these particles, now sometimes called exosomes, the tissue gets sicker and dies. And if you stop a child from having chicken pox, they are sicker for life. They're, and that's very clear. So this is not a disease. This is a detoxification strategy. It's like, you know, I say if you put debris in your lungs, right, that's called smoking. And then you get a cough to get it out. Which is the disease? I think the putting the crap in your lungs and the cough is the therapy. How do I know that? Because first of all, the, if you don't, if you think the other way, you do that twice a year for 20 years, and then you get lung cancer, which is just the accumulation of debris in your lungs. Mm-hmm. How did it get there? Well, A, you put debris in your lungs, and B, somebody stopped you from getting it out. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah. I mean, this is... This is common sense. At least yeah. I think it is. I mean, it really is common sense when you think about it. And <clears throat> I mean, even on the anecdotal level, right, for, for me and my wife, the more that we've done work to detox and clean up our own selves, I mean, we haven't gotten sick in four years, not even a little yeah. bit, you know, um, and, and we just ensure that we eat healthy and then our environment is healthy. There was a period where we were exposed to a large amount of black mold in our previous home and my wife started exhibiting symptoms again. And it's almost a perfect case study of exactly what you're talking about here. Now, yeah. my, my question is though, so what, what sort of happens, let's say, cause we always hear chicken pox parties or measles parties or someone that has chicken pox is experiencing symptoms and they go around other people who have no symptoms of chicken pox and then they take on the symptoms. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's interestingly one of the most difficult cases to explain mm-hmm. because, because unlike, say, a coronavirus or an HIV virus, where there is no evidence that the virus even exists, in fact, there's no, you know, the CDC says, page 39 on their bulletin, there is no isolates of this new coronavirus. That's, that's techno work speak for we don't have it, we've never seen it, we've never isolated. Same with HIV. I have a friend who offered somebody $100,000 to show an isolated HIV virus. Anybody in the world, $100,000, show me an isolated HIV virus from somebody sick with AIDS. This was 30 years ago, and he still has his $100,000. Oh, my God. With measles... Uh, Stefan Lenka offered anybody 100,000 euros for proving the existence of a measles virus. Just here it is, you know, here we can see it, not even that it causes disease. And the case went to the German Supreme Court, and because he knew that would happen, because they have a scientific master and they actually have a fair trial. And the ruling was there's no evidence that a measles virus exists. 
That was the ruling. And because there wasn't. Now, with chickenpox, there is a particle that you can see. So that's a little different than measles. And in order to understand it, you have to understand an experiment that was actually done by a guy named Luc Montagne, who got the Nobel Prize originally for saying that HIV causes AIDS, even though it doesn't. But anyways, he redeemed himself a little bit by proving that if you put a piece of DNA in a, in a beaker of water, and then you just put free nucleic acids in another beaker of water in another part of the room, and then you shine a light on the first one with the DNA in it, and you come back the next morning, the second beaker will have an identical copy of the same DNA. Wow. Now, how does that happen? I mean, let's just say, I don't really know, but I have a theory which is called resonance. We know that everything, you know, every molecule has a sort of frequency. It's like a, it's like a tuning fork. You put a tuning fork tuned to A, and you put a uh, piano in another room, and it starts resonating. And so that, that first DNA is sending off a frequency, especially if you put an energy source on it. And then the other, um, if it's in water, it has to be in water. If there's a lot, it has to be D, you know, DNA components in there. <laughs> there's nothing, to, you can't make it. It has to have the ingredients, basically. Yeah, you have to have ingredients to make a cake. You can't say, here's water, okay, make a cake. I mean, that's not <laughs> yeah. fair. So as long as you put free nucleic acids, you'll make a cake. So here you have a situation where you have a disease that we know is beneficial for all children to go through. We know that it's a detoxification mechanism. We know that if you have chicken pox, you will get less cancer, arthritis, and heart disease later in life. We know that if you go through this step, that you will have less autoimmune disease for your entire life. We know that this, this phenomena called chickenpox has come and gone through the, through the centuries. Like 500 years ago, there wasn't chickenpox, and now there is. So my hypothesis, and part of the problem here is since nobody tests these things, I can't refer you to any literature, right? Because nobody thinks like this. But I think what's happening is one child is doing their detoxification uh, thing because there's some universal toxin in, in, like in the air and in the water and the houses and emotionally or whatever. I don't know what the toxin is. They make these particles they resonate out, and any child who also needs to go through this accepts the resonance, and they go through it as well, and the whole village is a lot healthier for having done that. Wow, that makes and a lot of sense. And that's how it works. And then if, if it was, say, you know, glue toxin in the, in the walls of your house, which every house in America is full with poisons, that everybody knows, and if you stop doing that, by some miracle, chicken pox goes away. You don't ever see it again because you don't need to do that. So there's nothing, there's no resonance in, in all the other children. And I think that's probably the best explanation of how, of this observation that, you know, one person after another gets sick because there are people who don't get sick mm-hmm. and they don't apparently need to go through that kind of cleansing process. 
So really, it's almost as if viruses are sort of excreted after our bodies have dealt with a toxin in a communicatory manner. And then other people, if they do need that, they take it on, they take on that virus and then use that as an upgrade for their system so that when they can when they come in contact with that same toxin or similar toxin they are better equipped to defend against that toxin right that makes so much sense and that's why they the the modern virologists say 20 percent of the human genome is actually viruses Mm -hmm. but i would say it's it's actually not 20 percent it's 100 percent the whole genome was, you know, basically built on viruses. You know, if you got this thing happening, you incorporate this sequence. Mm-hmm. And that these sequences are called viruses. And they're packaged up in suitcases so they can travel from one place to another and allow organisms like people to actually adapt to their environment. Mm-hmm. So a war on viruses or stopping you from going through this by poisoning you with, say, a vaccine is a strategy of keeping organisms from adapting to nature, Mm -hmm. which is what's happening. And you get sicker and sicker and sicker, and that's where we are. So I have two questions. Well, really, I'll package it up in one. So people always, like, with with what's going on with COVID-19, make comparisons I mean, I don't, they don't, they don't really anymore because we're not seeing the death toll that we had during the Spanish flu, right? What happened in, in your mind um, with the Spanish flu and then what is happening right now with COVID-19? So the first thing about the Spanish flu is it's the, you know, it would, so that's considered the deadliest virus, most contagious virus ever, mm-hmm. Right. 20 to 50 million people died, they say, because of this contagious virus. But the the great thing about that story is it's actually, I would say, the only time in history that any official science attempted to prove contagion. (laughs) Here's how they did it. It was done by the Boston Health Public Health, and the whole reference is in my book, and, you know, we have the article and everything. So they took a hundred or so people in various stages of having the Spanish flu. You know, they were sick, fever, cough, mucus, the whole bit. They got a hundred volunteers from prison, or I would say volunteers. Mm -hmm. uh, And they said, okay, we're gonna do, put you in three groups. The first group is the people who are sick are gonna cough in your mouth for 10 minutes, open mouth, like, Imagine two people (laughs) kissing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you have to keep your mouth open. And the sick person, so we're talking about 33 of them, for 10 minutes, you have to cough in their mouth. And the second group was uh, basically similar, but they basically uh, breathed hard in their mouth. They didn't Mm -hmm. cough. So same open mouth. And the third group of about 35 people, and they actually wrote all the cases down. So Joe Blow is 104 fever, snot coughing, and he died six days later. We sucked some of the snot out of his nose and injected the snot into the volunteer from prison. Mm -hmm. Right? 
Mm-hmm. So there are three groups, about 108 or so people in the trial. You know how many of the volunteers got sick? I'm going to guess zero. One. One. He got a cold. He was one of the guys who had the snot stuck up his nose. And then he got a runny nose. <laughs> and they actually said uh, he did get a runny nose, but it had no relation to the to the Spanish flu. I mean, he was fine in a few days. He just got a snot out of his nose. And so you, you look at that, and you know what the conclusion of the study was? Most know. people would say, well, it's not contagious. <laughs> what they said was, we weren't aggressive enough in exposing the volunteers. And I remember when I first read that years ago, I thought to myself, like what? Do a lung transplant? I mean, seriously, like what, what are you supposed to? I mean, right? I mean, if you, if you stuck, stick the snot into, into somebody's lungs, that's a pretty aggressive maneuver. <laughs> yeah. you, you would think if you could transmit disease, that might work. Or open, open mouth coughing. <laughs> like even yeah, the thought of mouth. that is, is ridiculous. So Right. And, and, you know, so they proved it wasn't contagious. So what happened? You know, it turns out that every time you increase the electrification of the earth, and in that case, it was radio waves, and it started with, the actual soldiers who were the radio operators, because, you know, man-made electromagnetic frequencies are different than natural frequencies. They're pulsed and very specific. That's why a radio, you have to tune it to 98.6. You can't just, you know, have a, get any frequency. It's, very, it's deliberately specific and intense, and humans or animals have never been exposed to that, and it's a poison. Mm-hmm. And that was what would happen then, and the body attempts to detoxify by making packages of genetic material, otherwise called viruses. And it, it, the first time you're exposed in that way, you know, a lot of people get sick, and we have a new exposure now, uh, which, has been shown since 1977, millimeter waves, they cause hypoxia, they interfere with the oxygen in the environment, and they cause a hyperinflammatory response. And interestingly, they've actually even been shown to, if you expose somebody to millimeter waves on their skin, they generate particles which have these sort of identical genetic features as what they're erroneously calling a coronavirus. Yeah, and that paper was subsequently, quote, what people would say retracted, you know? Yeah, after two hours. Yeah, of course, we know what happened there. So, right, so so we know what happened. Now, I'm not saying there's not, you know, vaccine damage and cyanide and air pollution and glyphosate poisoning and starvation and fear and, you know, this theory that every disease has one specific cause and not, it's not part of our entire you know, interaction with our world is ridiculous. Like everybody you know, has 100 carcinogenic chemicals in their, their tissues and, you know, and et cetera. So there's lots of poisons, but there is a new kid on the block and that's you know millimeter waves, which cause exactly the symptoms which we're describing as COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. 
So, but again, you know, part of that, we, with this, we have epidemiology, you know, we have correlation between places that have millimeter wave, you know, has been instituted and sickness, and we have a mechanism. And people might say to me, yeah, but Tom, you're asking for clear proof for viruses, right? You don't have clear proof for millimeter waves. And I would agree. So that's why in the book I said, but we have the epidemiology and we have the mechanism. We don't even have a mechanism with, with coronavirus. Yeah. So let's do a study. <laughs> let's do a study and see. And if it turns out that it doesn't do anything to people, I'll say, turns out it wasn't that. I can guarantee you that it won't, that will not be the result. This sounds so similar because you're, as you're saying, let's, okay, let's do a study. You're right. I don't have much, <clears throat> much uh, scientific literature to corroborate what I'm saying, but I do know that the scientific literature to corroborate what you're saying is shoddy at best. And if not, it more so proves or seeks to prove what I'm saying. Th that sounds eerily similar to what we have going on with uh, the, the word that must not be named, uh, vaccines, um, and the science behind vaccines and vaccinology and immunization. Yeah, I, I, I would actually not call it immunization. It's called vaccines. Because mm -hmm, it there doesn't is produce no science. Yeah. There is no evidence that it saved any lives. There is no evidence that it works. There is no clear scientific evidence that it's safe. There's an in incredible amount of epidemiology and, and um, you know, uh, what's the word, mechanism that shows injury. And, and all any of us are saying really is, given that, do a study. Yeah. No, we can't do a study because then pe people might lose confidence in the fact Right. I, I agree. They might. They will. <laughs> of course no. they will. I mean, it's, it's, it's so obvious, right? Um, I mean, this is a, a, a subject that I'd like to think that I'm very understanding of and very privy to. And it's, I mean, the more you see it and the more you sit in this position, right? The, it's, it's almost obvious that, yes, of course people are going to lose confidence being injected, especially considering what you said, uh, that there's really nothing to show that viruses are the cause of illness. And we are injecting ourselves with God knows what, because these viruses aren't purified or, or like isolated completely. Here's something that I, that I, let me put you on the spot a little bit. Okay, please do. So can you describe, and I mean like making a cake, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, if I asked you how to make a cake, you'd say you go and get flour and put it with water and whatever. Mm -hmm. So how do you make a live viral vaccine? I mean, you grow it in a culture, from my understanding. You grow the whatever they've extracted. Give me the steps. Step one. Oh, boy. Here we go. So I think it's to isolate the virus, right? And then you take said virus, and then you grow it in some sort of culture to replicate it, and then you... Um, I mean, in theory, if that were all the steps required, if viruses were indeed the cause of illness, that would be the only thing that you would need to inject into a person to receive the response that you want, right? That's pretty good. You know, and what I found is um, very few people actually know how to make a live, how a live viral vaccine is made, including the anti-vax people. 
Mm-hmm. So here it is, and it's in its all its glory. You take somebody who's sick, right? With measles, it was a child named Edmondson. You take the snot from child Edmondson. You centrifuge it. You take the liquid from it with God knows what in it, right? Mm-hmm. You put that on a kidney cell. You starve and poison the kidney cell. It breaks down into lots of little pieces, and that's called a live viral vaccine. And maybe you you purify the debris. You don't purify, you filter the debris so you just get the liquid part supposedly with the virus in it. Mm -hmm. And if you get an attenuated virus vaccine, you take that liquid part at the end with all that stuff in it from the dead kidney cells and the chemicals and et cetera, and then you sterilize it. Mm-hmm. And then you have to add aluminum and other stuff in it. That's how they make them. And it tells you that they, they never even proved that there was a virus in the first place because mm-hmm. they didn't isolate it, purify it in the way that their own research, this 73 consensus statement of the Pasteur Institute said, you have to macerate it, filter it, density centrifuge, check it under electron microscope for purity. That should be the virus. They don't do that. They just do this culture thing and get whatever they get out of that, and that's the live viral vaccine. So not only is there no point to vaccinate really? There's also like so many reasons not to considering the fact that they contain a number, I mean, MRC5, aborted fetal tissue, you're injecting yourself with fragmented DNA from someone else, um, aluminum phosphate, aluminum hydroxide, thimerosal. I mean, just, just the ingredients alone, those are toxic to us. And considering that viruses are not the cause of illness, there really is no reason to vaccinate. There is no reason. And, but, you know, let, let me be clear, because if you ask most people, well, how did this, you know, uh, fetal cell line tissue get into the vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. Most people would think they dastardly added it to the vaccine mm-hmm. for some nefarious reason. Mm-hmm. But that's actually not true. It's just that in that case, the tissue that they used to grow it on was not monkey kidney cells, but f- aborted fetal skin lines. Mm-hmm. That's where it came from. And then they had a conference in, I think, 1998 by the CDC. It turns out, guys, they said, that when we do it like this, we get thousands of viruses in the end product, and we only really want the one. And how do we get it out of there? How do we get the other 900 out of there? And they go, I read the entire minutes of the conference. The conclusion was we can't because if you try to filter it, they're the same size as the one you want. And if you try to centrifuge it, they're the same weight as the one you want. And there's no way to get those stuff out of there. And so then they came to a fork in the road and they're conclusion was should we tell people that they're all contaminated and they said no because then they would lose confidence in the vaccine and again i thought that was correct because if you said to somebody 
you know, we, we, we really only want the chicken pox virus, but we can't really get that. It's also interesting, like, why don't they take a person with snot, you know, COVID-19 or something, and then macerate it, um, filter it, centrifuge it, and then they would have pure, supposedly pure coronavirus, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's how they did it. That's how they isolated viruses. You know what they say as to why they don't do it like that? They say, because there isn't enough to see. We can't see it. Oh and then you say, well, yeah, well, if there isn't enough to see, why do you think it's causing them problems? <laughs> no, we can't see it. Well, right, you can't see it because it's not there. And somehow that <clears throat> escapes the virology community. So it almost seems that um, much of the accepted paradigm, I'd say, paradigm when it comes to medicine, um, and again, calling them immunization is completely the wrong thing because they don't produce any sort of immune anything. But the more we continue down this path, the more sick we're going to get, not only like, not only because we're poisoning ourselves with toxins, right? But the other part of it is we're defending and ridding ourselves by like prescribing anti, uh, antibiotics um, and other, out, like other um, sort of, I guess, pharmaceuticals, we're continuing to rid ourselves of these necessary viruses and bacteria that we have within ourselves and are on our skin. And we're poisoning ourselves in the process. And those bacteria or that bacteria and viruses are there to help sort of break down those poisons that we come into contact with, right? Correct. Oh my God. That's really disturbing to hear. So it's this accepted paradigm. Uh, and I would say, I mean, more than more than 90% of people don't even have the wherewithal to understand what, what the implications of this are. Like, we're going to no, affect... No, 99%, including all the medical doctors. Because I didn't understand it either. I wrote a book on vaccines that I didn't understand. It, mm -hmm. it took this sort of you know, really this intense crisis, because I was sort of avoiding the whole thing for years. And we have no idea. Let me give you another example of the absurdity of this, um, because it's related, and I must admit, I'm gonna be a little satirical here, so if you don't mind. That's um, fine, I, I love it. it. So here, one of the main components of virology is the theory that we make antibodies to protect ourselves against viruses, right? Mm -hmm. That's why we're gonna have immunity tests which are basically antibody tests. So let me explain antibodies <clears throat> to your listeners. So here's how it works. You get a viral infection and then you make IgM, which are nonspecific antibodies, and those help you get rid of the virus. Mm -hmm. And then after two weeks, you start making IgG antibodies, and those uh, are specific to that virus and help, and as long as you have IgG antibodies, you're immune for life, mm -hmm. okay? That's how it works. So you take an example. You get an, a mumps viral infection, you make IgM antibodies, two weeks later you make IgG, and then you're immune for life. Let's take another example. You get a measles infection. You get make IgM, then you make IgG, 
except we found out the measles virus doesn't exist, so never mind that. Um, then there's chicken pox. So you get a viral infection, you make IgM, and you make IgG, and you never get sick again with chicken pox, except if you're an adult and you get shingles, which is sort of chicken pox again. So it turns out you do get chicken pox again, and we just call it by a different name, which is called shingles. Now, in the case of AIDS, if you have symptoms of AIDS and you go to the doctor and he does an antibody test for IgG, he says, oh, you have antibodies to IgG, to the HIV virus. That means the virus is making you sick. Mm -hmm. And then you have hep C. So your, your liver is falling apart and he does antibodies against hep C. And he says, you have antibodies, therefore I know the hep C is making you sick. Mm -hmm. And then you have symptoms of Lyme disease and you go in and get antibody tests and you show it to the doctor and he says, antibodies don't mean anything, so you can't say anything about this. And then you have rhinovirus, which causes colds, and you make IgG antibodies, but for some reason the, the rhinovirus escapes the IgG antibodies and you get a cold twice a year every year. The same with the flu, which you make antibodies to, but the flu knows how to evade the antibodies, and so you get sick with the flu every year. And with the coronavirus, we now know definitively that if you make antibodies to the coronavirus, it means you either had the virus or you didn't have the virus. You, you were either sick or you weren't sick, and you're either immune or you weren't immune. Now, if that makes any sense to you, then you're a better man than me because I don't know what all that means is like, what? So in this case, it means if you have antibodies, you're immune. But then with HIV, they said it's, it's being caused by the virus. How do you know? Because you have antibodies. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. You just told me that if I have antibodies, I'm immune. Yeah, but now it's different because this virus is smart. And the other one, that's a stupid virus. And some of them are smart and some of them are stupid and some of them are really smart. So they mutate every year and they make you sick no matter how many antibodies you have. And the bottom line, my friends, is antibodies mean nothing. <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, <clears throat> when it comes to determining whether a vaccine is efficacious, right? It's all predicated on whether the person developed antibodies towards exactly. the vaccine. So it turns out that if you make antibodies to HIV, that means the virus is going to kill you. <laughs> That's what they say. If you make antibodies to hep C, that means the virus is going to kill you. So if you make antibodies to coronavirus, does that mean the coronavirus is going to kill you? No. That means you're immune. Or maybe not. Or maybe you had it. Or maybe you didn't. Anyways, it's complicated. And right. <laughs> At some point, it's so complicated that you have to say, you know what, this is bullshit. <laughs> this is so ass backwards that it doesn't make any this, sense whatsoever. You know, and then you're an ace, you know, if, supposedly if you get the virus and you're sick, that means you have the virus. And if you get the virus and you're not sick, that means you're an asymptomatic care. They just make that word up. Oh, my God, man. Are, are you... There's no meaning to the word. There's no such thing as, 
it, it's just like, you know, we, we exposed uh, 20 different types of animals to this virus. None of them got sick. Conclusion, there's no animal model to the virus. Right. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't no make shit. sense. <laughs> no shit, there's no animal model. Are, are you, <clears throat> from, from your like, perspective right now, where we sit with, with everything that's going on, um, a lot of people seem to be sort of, I hate using this cliche term, but waking up to sort of the, the lies that they've been fed regarding all of this or, or the misinformation surrounding everything as it pertains to allopathic medicine and then a lot of other systems, right? From the position that you're in as a medical professional, are you hopeful or are you, uh, do you have a positive outlook um, for a paradigm shift uh, or are you, are you sort of in a position of like, it's, I really, really want my other medical professionals, my, my, uh, my colleagues to wake up, but they don't seem to be. Where do you stand on that? Uh, the first thing I would say is I have a saying that says hope is for suckers. And here's what I mean by that. So I'm living on a street and I think they're going to put in a 5G pole next to my house. And I say to myself, I hope they don't put that pole next to my <laughs> yeah. Next thing you know, they put the pole next to your house. Mm -hmm. Hope is a horrible strategy. That's why some of the worst charlatans in history have sold us on the promise of hope. Mm -hmm. It turns out it was in Pandora's box as where all the rest of the evils of the world are. Mm -hmm. Hope is not a strategy. I am not hoping for the best here because... That never works. Yeah. What 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 might work, or I, I don't know. I don't I don't spend a lot of time speculating on what's going to happen. All I can say is what I've just shared with you is how I see the world, mm -hmm. based on on trying to get myself to be scientifically literate, which after my medical training I wasn't. I was illiterate, and. I don't know why, but I was. I mean, everybody else was too. It wasn't yeah. like I was someone yeah. else. Than everybody else, but uh, I don't think so. Anyways, um, <laughs> and I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, so it, it's sort of not for me to say. All I can say is, you know, I'm I'm happy if somebody can prove me wrong. You know, here's a study that shows, you know, here's the virus that exists and here it causes disease. I'll change my tune. I have no, maybe I have skin in the game, but I, I really don't. I, I'm just, this is how I see it. I mean, now, you're really risking your, I mean, not risking in a way, but you're really like putting your yourself on the line here, standing up as a medical professional against pretty much everything that medical professionals have been taught, you know? Yes. But I mean, but I, I would rather be criticized for that based on here is the scientific evidence to show that I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Not because I'm going bald or I have no right to say it or because I don't work out enough or because I'm part of the Weston Price Foundation or because, you know, the medical board doesn't like me or I have no right to say this or, I mean, I don't, you know, what am I going to say? Mm -hmm. and, and what's amazing to me is people do criticize me and there's, you know, Mother Jones apparently did this sort of hit piece on it. And our book, we found out yesterday, was taken off Amazon. 
Um, so, but nobody ever says, Tom, here it, here's your statement on page 31. Here's where it's factually inaccurate. Now, there are some things which I openly admit I can't prove, and I'm, you know, talking about my understanding of how this might work with the expectation that somebody might actually do a study. And turns out, you know, I've done this before with the heart and other things, and people do take it up, and they have done studies, and I wouldn't, I mean, I have definitely not always been right, but you know, I'm doing okay as far as I can see. So I'm hope you know, I, I, I wouldn't mind if people do that. Mm-hmm. Because I'm I'm trying to be very clear, you know, there's one part of this which is debunking things based on the science. And then some of the things are speculation <clears throat> based on how I see the world. And I try to be clearly distinct about those. Mm-hmm. And I just have, I mean, all I can do is say what I think and see what happens. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. I, I know that you had brought this up on a, a number of podcasts that I'd listened to you. <clears throat> um, your ability to sort of openly express that you were wrong in some of your previous work um, or in some of the previous theories that you had adopted, um, your way of looking at the world. And, and then subsequently change your mind when presented with new information. And you don't see that often, as sad as it is, with any sort of profession, especially medical professionals nowadays. I can tell you that I think every single time I was wrong, and I was wrong a lot, uh, was because I believed the dominant narrative too much. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of the times I c- would come to a situation and I would say, I don't really think this adds up and either somebody would tell me or the publisher or I would tell myself, this is not the fight I want to have right now. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you there are even some things right now that I wrote in this contagion book, which I can tell, I'm pretty sure I'm going to, when I have the chance, I'm going to understand that that was too conventional and I just didn't want to fight that battle right now, and I'll correct it later. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there's some things that it, it just would have been too far afield to get into this right now. Mm-hmm. So I left it, and it's close enough. Yeah. Well, with that, where, where can people, since it's no longer on Amazon, where are some other spots that people can buy your by your yeah, go uh, to drtomcowan.com okay awesome well dr cowan this was very eye-opening conversation um i'd already listened to a number of your podcasts and uh each time i listened i learned something new so i was talking with my wife earlier and i was like i know that he'll say some things that i've already heard him say but i'll also learn a lot of info and i can tell you i absolutely learned a lot um, in this conversation. So I really, really appreciate your willingness to come Yeah, on my you know, show. my, I was saying my wife really likes your whatever, I think Instagram, or I don't really do that. But, <laughs> um, she, she, she's very impressed. And for a young, I don't know how old you are, but 28. for a young guy to do this, you, you got to just hang in there because mm-hmm. it's not going to be fun. But I mean, maybe it will be fun. It, it's fun if you realize that this is a battle worth fighting. Mm-hmm. And if you can keep that in mind, and there's 
a lot of people who appreciate what you're doing. There's a lot of support out there. There's a lot of good people who are trying to help out here. And just hang in there. Thank you. I really appreciate that, Dr. Cowan. I'll say the same to you. Hang in there, especially being in the Northeast right now. So Yeah, right. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. Take care.